Good evening, and thank you for joining us for episode six, part five, where we're going to be looking at the parable of the wise and foolish builders. Before we get started, you can go ahead and flip over to the book of Matthew, uh, starting around chapter five. And also, I apologize before we even get started, as you might hear a few coughs as I'm getting over a sinus infection, so I apologize about that. But let's go ahead and get started. This week, we're going to be zooming in on the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. In Matthew's gospel, this parable is found at the end of what we know as the Sermon of the Mount. This is a collection of teachings of Jesus, and it begins with uh, famous Beatitudes. It includes the Lord's Prayer and a series of teaching on the kingdom of heaven. They together look back over Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 5-7, through uh, which is why I should go ahead and turn there. But notice the topics he chooses to address as we go through this. Notice the order also in which the gospel writer arranges them. All of these create the context for our study, and context is incredibly important. Jesus talks about several life subjects in the Sermon of the Mount. He covers everything from food to law to anger, and even talks about lust. He teaches about divorce, about vows, revenge, a tough one here, loving enemies, and giving to the needy. He also explains prayer, fasting, money, and worry. All these topics create a dynamic that we are all familiar with, and it's something called life. They are very important in the story of the wise and foolish builders because they are the central life themes on display. Patricia St. John says it this way, Stooping very low, he engraves his care, his name, indelible upon our dust, and from our ashes and our self-despair kindles a flame of hope and humble trust. He seeks no second site on which to build, but on the old foundation, stone by stone, cementing sad experience with grace, fashions a stronger temple of his own. And that was actually said in 1991, and Patricia St. John tells her own story. The question I have for you tonight is what is the worst storm you have ever experienced? What was it like? And where did you seek safety? And what was the outcome? Um, I don't know about you, but my hometown is Oklahoma City, uh, right in the heart of Tornado Alley. Uh, All of us are known to have storm cellars around our homes, uh, but most actually have them now in our garage. And so it's really convenient. You can just go in there and, and hop in the storm cellar in Oklahoma. We call it the Oklahoma Frady Hole. And uh, only the scaredy cats go in there. But um, I remember uh, one of the worst storms I've ever experienced of actually going down in the storm cellar and uh, hoping my house was going to be there uh, whenever we opened the door. Um, I know that it was just, it was totally nerve-wracking and scary. And we were really unsure of the outcome. And I think that in many ways we can approach this parable in the same way, that we go uh, into life Uh, not really knowing what to expect. Uh, But what we can make a wise choice doing is actually building in the right place with the right foundation, uh, with the right things around us. And so uh, let's look at this uh, in the context of Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 27, uh, starting out with the ESV. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house, And we're going to stop there because the word actually house in the Greek context 
Sometimes I think we can view this as a very individualistic story that I need to build my house on the rock. Uh, but the, the Greek concept of this is actually not that at all. It's not talking about the individual. It's talking about a household. Uh, the Greeks would have understood it as the whole family or your entire residence. Um, so whenever we're talking about this, kind of picture it in that way, that your household is supposed to build your future on the rock. And as the rains fall and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that household or that entire residence, it did not fall. And the word fall here is also important. It's not literally meaning that you won't have things happen to you or bad things even, but it means that you won't fall from grace or God's favor. And how great is that to know that um, even though bad things happen to us, even though sometimes we doubt, that we don't lose God's favor because he loves us. Because we see in the story that their faith had been founded on the rock. Let's start now at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, it fell with a great crash. And as we kick off really week five of our parable stories, uh, let's really review our theme Our theme is Jesus used parable stories about everyday experiences to help us understand truths about God. Through these stories, we can better understand our own story and better understand God. You see, Jesus loved to tell stories. And in those stories are parables, and they seem to be his favorite kind to tell. Details were included, but they were seldom central to Jesus' message. Some parables were incredibly clear with with obvious meetings, and every listener caught the point. Some were less clear, almost like a code that you had to decipher, intended for Jesus' followers to understand while his enemies were confused. This approach kept his critics controlled, so Jesus' time was less consumed by argumentative harassment by groups, let's say, like the Sadducees or the Pharisees. So now let's dig real quick in like we did last week into the book of Matthew. Matthew was the earliest recorded of the Gospels. The book was written by Anonymous, but credit is given to Matthew the tax collector. The Gospel was memorized for about 30 or 40 years and then recorded by Matthew and put into a beautiful tapestry that really captures the 33 years of life and ministry of Jesus. The parables are important because they follow nine stories. Stories illustrate Jesus bringing his perfect kingdom to restore the brokenness of humanity. We all know these stories. They're stories about lepers, centurion servants, a stormy sea, and demonized men. It also includes a story about a sick mother, a mute, a deaf, a paralyzed, and even a deceased person. The point of these stories is to show that we need to follow Christ. It also shows that Christ loves everyone and all people, that everybody's included in his family. And in this story, Matthew reminds us that our Christian life and God's intention is not about the individual. It is about community. Remember this, the gospel of me is not the gospel. It is the gospel of us, the collectivist. So when we look at Matthew 7 and Luke 6, we have some similarity in the stories. And it's kind of an interesting one. Both begin with the phrase that goes something like this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
In fact, Luke 6 says it a little differently. He says, why do you not do what I ask you to do and you call me Lord? Now, it's a little bit more harsh in Luke. But it's as if Jesus is saying, don't miss the simple message. If you came for additional theology or teaching or an argument, you're really going to miss out. Because this is a parable that has to be applied to life and in the context into a household. The parable states that in this life, we will have storms. They are promised and they are inevitable. Storms in this context may be hard for us to grasp. So we'll call them a different name for now. We'll call them things like cancer, loss of a loved one, financial problems, abuse, or family drama, or a loss of a job. Therefore, building a household on the rock is crucial. This is Jesus' last words in his Sermon on the Mount. It is the parable of the wise and foolish builders. This is the question as we begin. Is your faith doable? Are you able to accomplish everything in it? If so, how are you doing your faith? Is your faith a theoretical faith or is it an actual faith? Um, When we answer these questions, it really tells a lot about where we're building our foundation. Um, The reality is God wants us to be his gospel in this world. He wants us to be his love, his works, and his body. We often want him to do the entire work or project for us. It's kind of the equivalent of this. It's kind of like back when you were a teenager and you didn't study for a test, and then you pay, a, pay off a studious friend to actually give you all the right answers. Now, that's not the faith we really need here. Uh, we also don't need the faith that says, Lord, I want you to show up in a burning bush and answer all the questions. Um, often, uh, God works through us, not through burning bushes or parting of Red Seas. We need a faith that is strong and something worked out with fear and trembling before the Lord. If we build our house on the sand, it will fall with a great crash. Scripture does not say it might fall. It says it will fall. The definition of sand is this. It's a loose granular substance. It is given to disassembly. Usually we think of sand in terms of sandblasting or water irrigation. But it's only meant to disassemble things. Our culture is kind of the same way. Our culture is a loose, granular substance. Society and culture are fragmented, split within special interest groups that satisfy their need. And as a result, if we're not careful, our faith can be hijacked by special interest. Things like extracurriculars, or job priorities, or even political parties. Because the reality is we live in a postmodern society. And there is a lot to say about truth. Postmoderns will say that there is no absolute truth and that there could be multiple versions of truth. For instance, that there can even be multiple ways to heaven or multiple ways to be saved. And that really, compared to the Christian gospel, is a scary thing because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this can be hard to tangle with in a postmodern mindset, theology, and world. 
So our faith must be rock hard, embedded in that foundation that's not going to move anywhere. 2 Timothy 3, 7 says it this way, There are people always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And I wonder what Timothy's talking about here. But in both instances of the parable, the storms come. Will your faith hold up? The thing is, if your faith is just an answer to change or circumstances or problems, it's not going to hold up when the storms come. We need to base more of our faith on something else. What we really need is maturity in Christ. Ephesians 13 says it this way, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. This scripture speaks of storms, and we have to have the rock as a foundation. Theology is a thought. It's life. Christ can't be a thought. He has to be our life. In fact, too, he has to be our entire uncompartmentalized life. Because you see, he is Christ in us. It's interesting to note that when you read the New Testament, the word Christian is only found three times. But the phrase in Christ is said hundreds of times. The following thoughts of the paraphrase are from Rankin Wilborn's book, Union with Christ. It can be hard for us to believe that Christ is in us, right? That's why Paul prays for us in Ephesians 3. And he says this, I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You might be asking yourself that it's strange that Paul prays for something that he already knew to be true. But you see, he was writing to those in Christ, who by definition are those in whom Christ dwells. We understand, however, that it's one thing to know something, but it's another thing to really know it. This is a prayer for what can be called experiential knowledge, to know that which surpasses knowledge. What this is really asking us to do is to move beyond intellectual comprehension of Christ and to experience our union or life with Christ. Maybe this is another way to say it. Imagine a little boy wearing his father's dress shirt. He's already fully clothed, and you could say... Yeah, but he's still just a little boy. He'll have to grow up into his new covering until it fits him. In the same way, we are already completely clothed in Christ and in righteousness. But life in Christ is one of growing up into this new reality until it fits us. You are not striving to attain it. You are striving to lay hold of what is already yours. You are growing up into it. And really, faith is just like that. 
Does the description sound more accurate than your vision of your relationship with Christ? Leo Tolstoy said it this way, The changes in our life must come from the impossibility to live otherwise than according to the demands of our conscience, not from our mental resolution to try a new form of life. And that's to say this, that our lives to Christ cannot be a resolution. It can't be that dreaded New Year's resolution that you do and then you fail in three months. Because we have to be transformed. We can't do it in our own power. And that's why Christ has to be in us. Christian isn't something that I do on Sunday or Wednesday. It's not a song that I sing. It's not a t-shirt that I wear. It's not a bumper sticker on my car. And it's not praying a certain way. That the mark of a true Christian is to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And may I be his hands and body and feet to do his will by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And knowing what I am, that I am made in the image of God, and that I am incredibly important to his kingdom, and I am the inspired creation, just a piece of dust that is God-breathed. Maybe that brings some encouragement to you tonight, knowing that you're a piece of dust that is God-breathed. But let's get back to the Sermon on the Mount. So how do our lives really change? In the words of Jesus, we become salt and light. We are people that don't stay angry at our neighbor. We know and keep the law and we respect it. We do not commit adultery. We do not divorce. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. We do not seek revenge. We love our enemies. In fact, as I said just a moment ago, we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, which is the true mark of sanctification or holiness in the life of a Christian. We give to the needy. We don't worry about tomorrow. Here's a toughie. We don't judge others. And we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So in essence, we build our foundation on the solid foundation, the chief cornerstone, Christ. So does your life sound like this? Is it a life marked by not committing adultery or divorce or not staying angry at our neighbor or letting our yes be yes and our no be no? If not, could it be possible that you have the head knowledge about Christ but need to acknowledge need that acknowledgement to move closer towards the heart. Let's ask ourselves some questions concerning this parable. According to the parable, what is the basis for determining whether a person is wise? And maybe that question could be followed up with this. What do you think it means to hear Jesus? Also notice in the story that both the builders experienced the storm What does this tell us about our lives? Are we exempt from storms just because we profess Christ? Or does it mean that the storms come for the just and the unjust? Kind of a reminder back to the story of Job. What do you think the house represents in the parable? Do you think it represents a life, a soul, or a community? I know we had talked about a lot of it uh, representing a household or an entire residence. And based on your answers, what does it look like when the house finally collapses from the beating of the storm? What would that mean in your life? And also, what are the things that a 
house falling apart could take away. Now it's time to find our story and God's story. Let's talk about how you will apply the wisdom you've attained from the teaching and the study of this parable. Think about the practical steps you can take in the coming week to live out what you've learned. Maybe it's something like this, that we don't build foundations by ourselves. We build them for our residents, for our household. We build them for the community. Because the reality is if I'm a better member of community, I make my community better. Christ is the foundation, and hopefully he's the foundation of our community. Using Jesus' metaphor, what is the foundation of your life and how are you building on it? The storm described by Jesus clearly came from every direction. Waters rose from beneath and came pouring down from above, and the winds whirled around the house. How have you weathered the storms in your life? And how has weathering storms enabled you to come around others experiencing trouble? Maybe you can see someone around you that is suffering from weathering storms. The church must be forever building, for it is forever decaying within and attacked from without. And that was actually said by T.S. Eliot. How has your group strengthened you for foundation? Do you have any accountability around you or maybe a cell group? And is it important to remember that there is no situation that Christ cannot redeem? If so, pray for those today who need to follow him. I hope that this parable of the wise and foolish builders has been a good study and reminder for you this evening. And may you build your house upon the rock, Jesus Christ, for your household, for your residents, and for your community. Have a great night. God bless you.